I'm here today with Patty Crowick, author of a new book titled Becoming Kin, an indigenous call to unforgetting the past and reimagining our future from Broadleaf Books. Patty's an Ashinabe, an Ukrainian writer from Lok Sul First Nation. She's the co-host of the Medicine for the Resistance podcast and co-founder of the Nik Nikanagana Foundation, <laughs> which collects funds and disperses them to indigenous people and organizations. Her work has been published in Sojourners and Canadian Living. She's active with the Fort Erie Native Friendship Center and the Strong Water Singers. Patty's a member of the Chippewa Presbyterian Church and lives in Niagara Falls, Ontario. You can learn more at broadleafbooks.com. So, Patty, it's wonderful to uh, have you join us, and uh, congratulations on your new book. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. So, to get started, uh, can you tell us what else you would like people to know about you? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, the Nikanagana Foundation is something that actually I started a number of years ago. Um, we had gone up north to... Um, our one son was living in Akaluit at the time up on Baffin Island and we'd gone to go visit him and, you know, we brought some supplies up and I just started fundraising to send sanitary supplies up there. And then that just kind of morphed into a larger crowdfunding thing. And now it's a nonprofit. And last month uh, we redistributed just about $8,000. And so we have projects and you know we do a lot of really neat things and fund a lot of really neat things so I'm really proud of um, I'm really proud of that foundation that we get uh, so I yeah it's with uh, Nora, Nora Loretto and Terrell Tailfeathers and I the three of us together uh, founded it uh, in the fall of last year of wow okay well what else would you like to share about your background I just kind of gave a very brief introduction there yeah, I have a background in social work. Uh, I spent 16 years uh, working in child welfare. Uh, I talk about that a little bit in the book, um, you know, because, of course, child welfare is a very colonial thing um, that's doing a lot of harm among uh, communities of color and, you know, disrupting families. And, and so I do talk about that, about my 16 years uh, of working in that and kind of how I, you know, started off as a true believer and kind of evolved you know, and my thinking changed over time and then kind of, you know, and, and how that impacted me and impacted, you know, the communities that I'm part of. So, you know, that's my background in social, you know, in social work. I have, um, you know, I have, I have, let's see, what else is there? I've got three kids, all of whom are adults. I have a grandchild that uh, is very cute and obviously the smartest child around. <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> well, my kids are all, you know, activists and, um, you know, ruckus bringers in, in, in all different ways. And so the things that I try to do, you know, in, in terms of local and, and larger activism is really just an attempt to keep up with them. Because, <laughs> you know, they've really kind of taken the things that – They've learned from me and done so much better with it. Wow. And I am just really proud of the people that they are. That's wonderful. That's very cool. So let's get to the new book. As I mentioned, the title is Becoming Kin, an indigenous call to unforgetting the past and reimagining our future. And if I'm not mistaken, this is your first published book? It is. It well, is, Congratulations yes. on that. That's a huge yeah. milestone. It is, yes. And how did the book come about? Wow. Okay, so... A number of years ago, you know, so I'm, I'm sitting in church one Sunday and, and the pastor starts talking about uh, about identity politics and how identity politics is out of control. And I mean, really, if, if a white pastor is going to start talking about identity politics, he should just not because 
it's a complicated subject to get right. And more often than not, you're just going to cause harm. And, and it did cause a lot of harm. It was a really upsetting sermon to listen to for a number of reasons. Uh, so I got very angry about um, about the things that were being said, uh, largely about trans people. And, you know, so I went home and I yelled about it on social media. And, and oddly, that didn't help at all. <laughs> you know? So uh, so I wrote an article about identity, about, you know, identity as an Indigenous woman, about, um, about a church that found home in the Americas and yet made Indigenous people homeless. In, in the process of, of finding home. And Sojourners Magazine published it. Um, and, you know, the, and that's what it's about. It's about finding, it's, a, it's about the church finding home at the expense of Indigenous people. And, you know, kind of where our, our identity sits in that, our identity being very much connected to the land and place. And what does that mean when we're pushed out of kind of the core of, of how we understand ourselves to exist as people? And then an editor from Broadleaf Books found it. So it's really kind of your, you know, kind of your, you know, discovered in the malt shop story. Um, Valerie messaged me on Twitter and I actually sent it to a couple of friends of mine to say, like, is this real? Like, is this a, am I being scammed out of money? Like, I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> because she had messaged me to ask if I had ever thought of writing a book. And I, I Right, up until that point, I hadn't, um, you, you know, and I said, I said, well, I am now, actually. <laughs> and so my friend said, no, no, this is legit. This is legit. You need to jump on this. And, and so I did. So uh, so I jumped on it. And um, she was really, I, I can't speak highly enough of her, um, you know, the relationship that we built, you know, uh, you know, uh, as a writer and an editor, there were times when I would soft pedal things that I was saying, like I had, um, you know, I had described residential schools and epidemics and, you know, and, and you know, the trails of tears and, and all of these things. And, and then I moved on to talk about, um, you know, sorry, then I moved on to talk about residential schools. And, and so I had said, you know, like after this period of disruption and upheaval, and she highlighted that part of, you know, and sent it back and said, you know, that really doesn't feel adequate to what you've just described and so I said, okay, okay. So after this period of genocide and ethnic cleansing, and he was like, okay, thank you. And so that was really important because, you know, as Indigenous people, as, as marginalized people, we, we're often careful in our language, right? Like careful in how we say things because, you know, we if you're too harsh, there's consequences for that, right? And of course, I had just come out from 16 years of working in a field where I had to become be increasingly careful what I said and how I said, or I wound up back in HR. So, you know, so, um, so for her to give me that permission to, you know, to to say it as plainly as it needs to be said, because of course, if we don't say things that plainly, then people can continue to pretend that it wasn't really that bad. Right, right. They can continue thinking about this period of genocide and ethnic cleansing as a time of disruption and upheaval, which really, I mean, she, she was 100% right. It, that was completely, you know, completely inaccurate to what I had, what I had just described. So, yeah, so I, anyway, so that's, that's what happened. I started off being angry and yelling about things on social media. It became an article that Sojourners published that then became something an editor noticed. And then, you know, she worked with me to, 
turn it into this book. Wow, that's very cool. I mean, so many authors, you know, have much different journey, right? Mm -hmm. you know, put together a book proposal, try to get an agent, be told no, you know, 2,700 times uh, <laughs> before someone says yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I'm always very mindful <laughs> of that. And, and then to be able to offer kind of support wherever I can, because I know that my experience was very atypical. And, you know, and so I want to, I want to be able to, you know, kind of bring as many people along with me as I can. Well, Valerie's really excellent. I mean, both at finding new voices as well as, you know, what I've seen or working with, you know, folks to create the books that have come out. Um, and she's, she and the author she's worked with have come out with just some excellent books over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm not surprised if your positive comments about her collaboration with you. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, who would you say the book is most intended for? Um, yeah, she asked me that at the very beginning. Who was I writing to? And I really, I have three audiences, um, you know, kind of a, a, as I worked that through. I mean, first and foremost, there's, you know, the good Christians who make the evils of colonialism possible. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I'm thinking, of, you know, thinking about my own church community, about the churches that I grew up in you know, the churches that I've attended over the years who are, are, you know, filled with mostly kind, generous people, and yet so incredibly, at times, willfully unable to see what they're participating in and, and creating, you know, and, and co-creating. Um, you know, so that's my first, that, that, that's my first audience. And then my second audience, so that would, you know, so that would be kind of my experience growing up. Um, my second audience is, you know, my mom's family, you know, and, and the new company, you know, newcomers and refugees and how are they going to fit themselves into Canada, into the U.S. that, you know, kind of builds themselves as these, you know, great multicultural places and yet really remain very much white supremacist settler colonial societies. Mm -hmm. So how do newcomers, you know, fit into our, our place? And within that category, I'm also thinking uh, of black people and where do they fit in? Like often when, like, you know, my podcast, you know, with my friend Carrie, that's something we've talked about is when we talk about land back, what does that mean? What does that mean for her? She doesn't know where back would even be. Her story ends in, you know, ends in Haiti. And she, you know, she knows that Africa's back there, but she doesn't know where her ancestors came from. And so what does, how do we form relationships in that context? And then the last audience, of course, is my paternal family, my indigenous community, not so much because I think I have anything to teach them. I mean, this is our experience and they know their experience better, you know, you know than I do in some ways, particularly if they grow up in their communities, but also to give them language. Sometimes I have found indigenous media really helpful for me and just help giving me the language to talk about the things that I knew, hmm. you know, to bring it out from where my lived experience was and be able to put it into words and frames that would make sense to other people to help them. So it's not that I think I'm teaching them things they don't know as much as giving them language to explain what they already know. So it's those three kind of different groups of people that I'm writing. For. Hmm. Very cool. Well, it's, you really thought that through well. <laughs> which I'm sure Valerie is, you know, glad to hear too. <laughs> and the marketing <laughs> people at the publishing house too. <laughs> so um, 
you know, obviously we all know storytelling is central to indigenous tradition and history, and you weave quite a few indigenous stories <clears throat> throughout the book to um, introduce each section's frame. Um, what do you think we can learn from those stories today? I think, I mean, one of the things, you know, when we talk, think about indigenous stories is, you know, it's an oral tradition, right? And they're changeable. So the story, you know, and we've talked about this on the podcast with some with some of our guests, is the stories that might be told in Lac Soul are similar but not the same as stories that are maybe told in, you know, say, you know, other Ojibwe or, you know, Anishinaabe communities. So they're similar, but they shift a little bit and they shift over time you know, as opposed to just kind of being these fixed stories that maybe Christians are more used to, you know, it got told a certain way 2000 years ago, and we think that we still read it the same way today. Whereas oral traditions can be more changeable to what does the community need right now? What do we emphasize? You know, how is this story shifting and changing to meet the needs of the community? A friend of mine just, um, this isn't one of the stories that's in the book, but I was asking her about Dear Woman, because the idea of a dear woman is, you know, kind of re-entering the collective imagination, right? I mean, she showed up in the TV show Res- Reservation Dogs, and um, even in Thor Ragnarok, right? Hela had that, you know, beautiful crown of antlers that she wore. And what my friend had told me was that these ideas of vengeance and retribution weren't part of her original story, but they're part of her current story, partly because that's what our communities need right now. We need the idea of fighting back and protecting the things that need to be protected. And so the story evolves. And that's, I think, where Indigenous stories can be really powerful because we're okay with that. We're okay with that fact that the story that my cousin tells me, you know, from Laxwell First Nation isn't exactly the same as the one that my friend from Curve Lake would tell it. I'm okay with those things being different. I don't need to force them together. And I think that's something, I mean, I grew up in the evangelical church. So the idea that there were possible discrepancies between the way Matthew told the story and the way Mark told the story, and we would like turn ourselves into pretzels to force them to fit together rather than just acknowledge that these were two different perspectives highlighting two different things. and That's okay. You know, kind of being okay with that, that, that kind of tension, maybe tension is the wrong word, but just kind of being okay with that multiplicity, that these things can both exist at the same time. A friend of mine, Laura, uh, a friend of mine would call that uh, like a quantum physics way of thinking. Really? Really? <laughs> Lawrence Gross in one of his books actually has a whole chapter on that, how indigenous thinking is very, very in line with quantum mechanics. <laughs> so um, you mentioned in the book, you talk about unknowing. Um, and can you, Explain a little bit about what that means in this context. Unforgetting. Or unknowing. Yeah, well, unforgetting, because it's uh, unforgetting, unforgetting the past and reimagining our future. Okay. Yeah, so the idea of unforgetting is something that um, I came across um, reading an interview with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And she had talked about, I don't know, the idea of unforgetting was just really interesting to me because it's, it's a new word, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a new word. So what does that mean? You know, what's what's un, what's unforgetting? And so what she had talked about is in Greek, 
the opposite of truth is forgetting. So the opposite, so we would say that the opposite of truth is lie. But she says in Greek, the opposite of truth is forgetting. And that's a very subtle difference. Hmm. And so when we're then telling the truth, what we're doing is we're unforgetting things that we used to know, things that have maybe become, you know, part of the substructure of our lives. Like we don't think about, you know, we look at, at disparities, you know, we look at, say, prison populations, for example of why there are, you, you know, there are so many black and indigenous people per capita in prison compared to, you know, compared to white people. And we forget, we have seemed to have collectively forgotten why that is, you know, how we went from plantation to prison, you know, to our current, you know, to our current. And so it's unforgetting. It's getting back to those old histories, looking at them again and seeing what stories we can tell, we can tell from those histories that explain the world that we live in in a better way because those disparities exist it's how we explain them that is the problem because if there are more black and indigenous people in prison because there's something wrong with black and indigenous people well i'm going to have some thoughts about that because i don't think that's true but there's a reason why there's more of us in prison and so we and you know and the answer to that is in this history in this time that we have forgotten and so we need to unforget we need to pull those things forward and and look at them again and think about what they mean in our current world Hmm. so um as i mentioned in the introduction you're part ukrainian um obviously we've had this serious conflict i mean how's that affected you uh well i mean i'm not yeah like my mom my mom is ukrainian um my grandparent, you know, my uh, grandfather was Ukrainian. My grandmother is actually German, um, part of the group that Catherine the Great brought into the Ukraine huh. to displace the Ukrainians, huh. you know, to displace them. And so they created these little communities um, that remained German, like for 200 years. And so that was my grandmother's family. And then she married Ukrainian man. And so I know that I probably have extended relatives who are in the Ukraine. I am obviously sympathetic to any group that's experiencing Russian imperialism. I grew up on those stories. Uh, My grandfather being uh, conscripted into the Red Army and then, and then, um, you know, and then fleeing and then getting caught and getting shot and left for dead. And I mean, he has quite a story that could could be a movie. Uh, That could be a movie all on its own. Um, you know, meeting my grandmother, coming to Canada. I mean, he, when he was shot and left for dead, they didn't leave him with any identification. Huh. So when he wanted to come to Canada as a refugee, he had no papers. Huh. And at this point, and now, you, you know, it's after the Second World War. He's in American-controlled Germany. He's not going to be able to get his papers from Moscow. They think he's dead. <laughs> so he came to Canada uh, using the the paperwork of my grandmother's first husband. Wow. Uh, so he lived his entire life under another man's name. Wow. And it was we knew this. This was like an open secret in our family. Um, but he would never tell us what his real name was. It wasn't until he it wasn't until shortly before he passed um, that he would that he would let us know, he let us know what his, what his true name was. But he's still buried underneath another person's name. Wow. Yeah, and he was actually a little upset because uh, George was six months older than him, and so he, or six months younger, I forget. So, anyway, so he had to work six months longer before he could retire. I remember him. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, so so there are all those connections and those relationships that I've inherited, right? Like there's my connection to what's happening in the Ukraine now. There's my connection to refugees and migrants and people who enter these countries through all sorts of means, right? Like he, he came to this country with false papers, you know, and, and made a life here, made a made a good life here. So that's part of that's part of the relationship I inherit and part of the things that I think about is, well, then what is my responsibility to other migrants and other people trying to get here who may not have the kind of paperwork that our government says that they yeah. should have? Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's a crazy story, isn't it? I mean, it's a wild, yeah. I've it's a, it's a really, really neat story. I got to sell that. I need, a, I need a Hollywood person to be listening yes. to offer, yes. to offer to make that movie. <laughs> so um, you, we've both indigenous aspects of stories and Christian aspects of stories together in the book. Can you talk about your framework for doing that integration, how you think about it? I love stories, right? I love stories. And once I understood the Bible as a collection of stories, as a collection of people who were just trying to understand how they fit into the world and how they had relationship with, you know, with the divine, with the creator, with however they wanted to think about that, it started to make a lot more sense. It started to be less intimidating. And I, I looked like one of the things, you know, that I had been thinking about it as I look through the book is, are there, are there things that I would say differently? Like in the book, I talk about uh, original instructions and, you know, and that we need to get, <clears throat> we need to get back to our original instructions that the Bible contains original instructions. And now I would talk more about alternative readings because I'm not sure that the original intentions of the people who wrote the various books, I'm not sure that they're even really knowable. I mean, when we, I just recently came across the concept of originalism as it relates to the U S constitution, the idea that U S Americans should interpret the constitution according to the way the writers intended it. And we think of the Bible and the stories within it in the same way, thinking that we, can and should interpret it according to how somebody 2000 and more years ago intended. And if we can't even, if Americans can't even do that with a document that's 200 years old in a country with a continuous history and a well-documented history, like how much more difficult is it to do that with documents written? And they're not even the, the copies of documents of people who wrote down what they thought was important at the time from 2000 years ago, a culture significantly different and in a different political setting from our own. So once I understood, I liberated it from that idea and think of it as stories that still have the power to speak to us today, just like indigenous stories do to tell us kind of how we can relate to each other, how we can relate to the world around us, and it really is just a mix of stories that make sense to us. And so if my audience is, I would say, probably 50 or 60 percent, you, you know, the white Christian, you, you know, you know, who wants to be a good person, then those are the stories that are going to make sense to them. And so like, can we look at them differently? Can we understand them differently? Like there's I, where one point where I talk about a sermon um, you know, he's talking about the Babylonian captivity, and he says, can you imagine 
Can you imagine walking all that way into, you know, into exile and looking back at your homeland? And I sat there, you know, with a black man in my church sitting right in front of me thinking, yeah, I can think of at least two people in this room who can imagine that. And so it's about putting those things together. And is it, can we, can we look at these stories a little bit differently? And if we look at them a little bit differently, can that help us become better relatives to each other as opposed to, you know, just one side thinking that it's got all the good news for the other? Can Christians start asking Indigenous people, do we have, you know, do I have good news for you? Because, yeah, I do. <laughs> so are there any particular writers that you felt were particularly inspiring for you as you wrote this book? I do actually, at the end of the book, I have kind of a list of, of recommended reading um, books that were that were really important to me. Um, I would say Daniel Heath Justice is, has been not just not just his books, but also just conversations with him have been have been really helpful. I know we mentioned Caitlin. We were talking earlier about Caitlin Curtis, um, Chanda Prescott Weinstein. I mean, uh, she just put out a book. Oh, just last year, uh, the disordered cosmos. About um, she's an astrophysicist, and um, it's just a fascinating book. Lawrence Gross, um, his book Anishinaabe: Ways of Knowing and Being, was really great. Anything by Leanne Betta Samosaki Simpson. Um, she's a Mississauga Anishinaabe writer from the Peterborough area. I talk often about. Um, the works of Alexis Shotwell and Aurora Levins Morales. They think a lot about what it is to be in relationship um, from a non-Indigenous point of view and have some really neat ways of thinking about history and relationship that I thought fit in really well with what I was talking about, what I was talking about too. Mm-hmm. So what would you say are your hopes for this book? I hope to have a lot of conversations about how we can live together in this world because we're talking more and more about land back, about rematriating the land and shifting our relationship. We're in a climate crisis. People, you know, will say, oh, you know, the native people need to, you know, indigenous knowledge will save us. And we're like, no, we're not just here to clean up your mistakes. But, (laughs) you know, but relationship with us and moving forward together, that could make some serious um, each chapter kind of ends with a task, a thing that the reader can do. And it starts from as simple as noticing us. Just where are the Black and Indigenous people in your life? Where are we in your community, on your bookshelf, in your workplace, you know, in the theater? You know, you know where, are, where are we? And then it moves through to, you, you know, towards, you know, kind of more in, in increasingly tangible tangible tasks and so you know I ask people about land back and one of the exercises that I ask people to do is if you can't actually return the land and a lot of people can't you know they don't actually own the land that they live on um, what if you acted like you could you know how would that shift your relationship with the local community if the indigenous people were your landlords Hmm. You know, like if the church gave back all of its land, you know, to Native people with lease agreements and saying, okay, so we can lease this land for five years, you know, in five-year chunks, and, you know, it's yours now. We're going to lease it for five years because, you know, we just finished paying off this building, and we'd really like to keep using it. How does that then change that church's relationship 
mm. with the indigenous community mm. if now they're motivated to avoid eviction <laughs> right because now they're like okay so we can live here we got pretty cheap rent uh, you know but we don't want to be evicted in five years so we so so how is that going to change the relationship it changes it significantly Interesting. I'll do that. Never thought so of that like before. that. <laughs> Never thought of that before. Wow. Well, um, Patty, again, congratulations on this this book. It's very important. I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, as we're speaking here, the book's not out yet. Um, no. It'll be next month. Um, and again, the name of the book is Becoming Kin, an Indigenous Call to Unforgetting the Past and Reimagining Our Future. And you can check it out at broadleafbooks.com. So, Patty, thanks uh, for joining us and, and sharing uh, with us. And, and, again, congratulations on uh, producing this book. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the conversation.